Hey everyone, welcome back to the 443 Security Simplified. I'm your host, Mark Liberty, and joining me today is Corey Firejump Knockreiner. Fire Jump. Oh, okay. <laughs> it, it that might make be more sense in just a bit. The fifth stop in the Himalayas, I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't think that is. But, uh, I think I if you're think, on. I mean, it's not. It's simply opposite, I guess. If you're on the fire jump portion of the trail, you're probably. You took a wrong turn. Yeah, but anyways, (laughs) he fell in some crevasse on Everest and went right down into (laughs) the core of the earth (laughs) instead of the freezing cold (laughs) part you're usually in. On today's security podcast, not mountain climbing podcast, we will be discussing a couple of reports. One thanks to the Linux Foundation and the other courtesy of Forescout, where we discuss open source and OT system security. And then we will round it out by going over Gartner's eight security predictions for this year uh, and give them our own thoughts along the way. Uh, So with that, let's go ahead and hike our way in. So last week was the 2022 Open Source Summit in Austin, Texas. Uh, which to those that aren't nerds that follow every single tech conference out there, uh, it's a conference hosted by the Linux Foundation to basically discuss all things open source. Um, They've got a bunch of open source related projects and vendors that help sponsor it. They discuss um, updates to the the Linux environment and other uh, common or at least popular open source projects too. Um, But to kick off the conference... Uh, the Linux Foundation and is it meant Sneak? I feel like I should know how to pronounce this. We use it. Sneak, Snike, Snick. Um, I think Sneak. Like I, I, I would read it as Snick, but Sneak seems like what they're going for with the weird spelling. I think it is Sneak. Either way, Sneak. Uh, pretty popular and actually relatively new, but up and coming uh, code analysis vendor uh, published a joint report titled "The State of Open Source Security." Um, with some findings from a survey that they basically sent to a bunch of people that contribute to or maintain open source software, um, contributors to packages that are used by it, developers of proprietary software that use open source software, individuals in the the environment, and also um, with data from their open source version of their own source code analysis tool to basically build this picture of vulnerabilities and um, security within open source. Now, I know this is a topic we've talked touched on quite a few times, typically on the side of people stealing or compromising open source packages through package management libraries and using that to take over or inject malicious code into other applications. Um, but in this case, the Linux Foundation and Sneak were looking at specifically of the open source software out there, like what does the overall security picture look like? And there were some pretty interesting key findings from it. Like right off the bat, uh, they said the average application has 5.1 outstanding critical vulnerabilities, um, and which I'd have to imagine that number is critical vulnerabilities that are known and are in the process of being resolved. Uh, this probably came from their application itself, which it can scan through uh, source code and look for common, uh, commonly looking code uh, bits that look like potential vulnerabilities. They also look at like the open source libraries that you use within your project. But five open crits, that it's not too that's high. That, it's, high, it's, I, I, it's high, but 
for a single package, I like I, one. I they, obviously they probably have more like in the tens of vulnerabilities when you go to low, medium, and but I feel like if they're literally handling five open criticals, it just seems. I mean, knock on wood. I I don't. I, I guess <laughs> I should look at how many criticals we have going, but it just seems like a lot. Less than five for us, at least. Um, and that's across an, an entire system, not just a single module package. in the system, too. Yeah. So, yeah, I guess you're right. In that context, it is pretty high for a single package. Like, even it's like using a, a point of reference like OpenSSL, uh, which does a really good job of disclosing security weaknesses they have, resolving them quickly. The typical OpenSSL advisory, it's like once every, I'd say, month and a half, two months or so. And in general, a crit on there is relatively rare lately. I know there was like a, a spat back in probably like the mid 2010s where it felt like we were getting critical advisors in OpenSSL almost every single month. But lately it's been like a high and a couple mediums and that's basically it. And so with that as a frame of reference, like it, it does seem that five outstanding crits on average in a project is a bit high. Yeah, I, I think they started off... Uh their report, but also some of their articles just pointing out that uh, obviously they're at a Linux conference, so they say Linux is more secure because it's open source or, or open source is more secure because it's open. But they point out that that does not mean people are looking for the vulnerabilities. Just because you can doesn't mean you will. So I, you know, I wonder if some of it has to do with the platforms that we've talked about before that just have less maintenance, you know, might have one hobbyist or used to have a big group of people maintaining them, but they all moved on. So yeah, a dual edged sword. On one hand, it's open and anyone can look for vulns. On the other hand, if people stop looking, you end up with a little over five outstanding critical vulnerabilities being your norm. Like, I think at this point, I'd say it definitely has the potential to be more secure just because those additional eyes, but like you were saying, I I don't feel like it is in general more secure just because instead of a like a business maintaining it with a team of developers, like you said, a lot of these even really popular ones are literally just like one dude uh, managing pull requests into it. Yes, it may get some contributions from other people outside of that developer, but for the most part, it's like a lot of really popular packages and libraries are maintained by just individuals as like a passion project. I think we forget social humanity when we think about open source and that, yeah, everyone can read it. Look at this free utopia. Anyone can go and check this source. But, you know, <laughs> money uh, drives us. <laughs> I mean, we all don't have enough time in the day. Uh, so we all have to live and make money. So people that start out with this nice feeling of donating time for open source, I guess some can turn it into a job. But, you know, a lot of it is community effort. But if you're not paying people, they're going to deprioritize things. So and I, I, platforms I don't think like can... uh, oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, platforms like Patreon have actually made it easy to earn, not necessarily easy, but possible to earn a bit of money as a open source contributor just from people that use your package and want to donate a coffee a month to you, basically. But even then, like that's going to incentivize still new features to keep it interesting and get more people in versus necessarily some yeah, fixing fixes. maintenance. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, it's a lot more stats, so I interrupted you on one, but we should go through the rest for sure. Yeah. Uh, so when it comes to maintaining like your your application or system you're developing um, and using open source packages, it turns out that like, most applications use 
quite a few different dependencies. In fact, they found the average project has 69 dependencies in it. So basically 69 different packages that you need to stay up to date on their security to ensure that you're keeping them updated within your project. It's like using us as an example, like the Firebox, we use things like OpenSSL for our encryption library, OpenSSH for our SSH library. Um, all of these are open source applications that like we um, have a, a formalized program to make sure that we keep up to date for the latest security advisories too. That's 69, That's and that's just the first level dependencies. Um, once you get down to those dependencies dependencies, it just turns into a massive spiderweb mess. Like I've written a few um, just hobbyist projects myself um, and published them with like a few minor dependencies. And once you, and this is like in the JavaScript space, so using NPM as a package manager. And NPM actually does a really good job of giving you an audit of security advisories and the packages you use. And sometimes it is mind blowing to see like this one dependency, like three branches down from something that I used for the specific component has like this critical vulnerability in it that needs to be patched. Like it, it explodes beyond that first level. Yeah, it, it does blow your mind, but it's also not surprising. I can't remember if it was just you or me and talking or if it was on the podcast, but the nature of coding today is functions exist for almost everything. The reason open source contributes so many dependencies in what quote unquote is custom code is I feel like Nowadays, custom code is just connecting code, grabbing functions from all kinds of frameworks, all kinds of open source. And it, it makes sense, by the way, that's not a bad thing. You know, the, the same article that mentioned that's the state of programming today is the custom code is just glues between different functions that you find in a lot of different packages and libraries free or whatever or on your OS. It makes sense, but it also means that all these coders are adding code to their projects that they haven't necessarily validated in any way or, or looked at the vulnerabilities of, or they're just hoping and, and praying that because it's open source, someone's taken care of it. But yeah, I, I think the nature of coding today means that, as you mentioned, you start to get spider webs of dependencies because a lot of new code is just... Uh, you know, putting together a new chain of functions, but using a lot of existing things. And actually, like to back that up. So there was another relatively recent report by a company called Tidelift, and they found that the average program today comprises of 70% open source software. So like you said, it seems like most applications are basically gluing open source modules together. And it's that glue is the, the custom code that the software engineer is writing, making use of all these other libraries and modules, which makes sense. Like it, you don't want to reinvent the wheel if there's something that has already done it well and established for the last like decade, basically. That's the beauty of, that's why function libraries exist. Like imagine if every program you put on Windows had to reinvent how you displayed a window and, and where the close button in the, you know, the beauty of the standardization of function libraries is all the basics are done for you there's and you, and you can focus on new stuff so it's a it's another double edged sword i don't think it's bad that people are using open source at all but really a, a single program is really a spaghetti spider web of all kinds of code coming from different places so if you're not at least somehow validating or doing some open source review of the stuff you use you you could quickly get into some issues by not keeping up and it may not even be the open source library's fault it's up to you to keep up with the latest version you know if you're too late yeah 
<laughs> we won't get into that right now. And but yeah. soon, like, it may not even be you. Like, uh, GitHub just launched something called Copilot, which is a AI-powered plugin uh, for, like, VS Code and other IDEs that'll basically suggest code snippets for you to complete whatever you are currently working on. Like, if you're building wow. out a function to, like, say, <laughs> print something out, like, it'll suggest the rest of the completed function for you or comments or everything around it, even unit tests for it, too. <laughs> Yeah, so soon maybe all of our applications will just be written by AI. Wow, I was about engineers to say. will just be like AI babysitters. I thought AI was just going to like uh, just take all the warehouse jobs and car driving jobs, but it sounds like it's <laughs> taking over programming too. Exactly. Um, so other stats from the, uh, the state of the open source security report, it took on average 98 days to fix a vulnerability in a project, which is just slightly outside the like kind of industry agreed window of 90 days from point of discovery to point of disclosures. So I'd say that's actually pretty good. Like, especially considering this is any vulnerability, not necessarily just a high or a crit, because I know lows take longer too. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Like if, if you have a, if you had a low, you know, maybe that number is somewhat skewed due to prioritization. If you have a really low vulnerability, there's no reason to rush it in 90 days necessarily when you have crits to get to. So I, I would imagine the lower severity ones might elevate yep. that number. Uh, when it comes to organizations that use open source software, only 24% of them were confident in the security of their direct dependencies, which, I mean, having watched the uh, the industry over the last few years, I guess that sort of makes sense. Like we've seen several attacks against package managers, against libraries themselves. Like it, it makes sense to not necessarily be confident in the security of your dependencies. Doesn't mean that you feel like they're all just Swiss cheese, but like I, I mean, I'd go so far as to say I'm not super confident in just any open source dependency I've used either. Because who knows? I haven't personally reviewed every single line of code in it, and even if I had, I doubt I'd be able to find everything. I think it has to do with this, the maturity of the software development life cycle of the organization. But when you have a small and new company, you know, I, I just don't think they have the tool. Like they may not be able to afford, afford sneak or have the tools that help them kind of in a more programmatic way, keep track of what open source they're using, where it is and what version it is. So I, I can definitely see you, you know, you have a library you put in seven years ago and it works and, and it just gets lost if you don't have that software development lifecycle in a more mature state. And speaking of that more mature state, only 49% of organizations had a security policy that addresses open source software. So how to actually manage these usage, uh, this usage within your organization or the applications you're developing. Which... I will say it's something that should be growing. I, I can tell you as uh, someone that does M&A, as you... You know, one of the reasons you build a company is to grow it and, and maybe one day sell it. But people are starting to like one of the questions in tech due diligence nowadays is all about uh, open source and OSS, you know, usage. And so it is part of diligence. So I, I definitely believe the less than half actually have a policy because we've kind of seen that when we've asked the question of other companies. But uh, it's something that you definitely should do if you ever want to grow to a company that has some sort of a great event because uh, it's something people are looking at now for sure because of probably this lack of confidence there and then rounding it out 41 percent of organizations are strictly not confident in the security of their open source software which is i feel like the fitting end to this survey because it's basically <laughs> my thought as well too yeah i mean 
there are ways to resolve it. Like we just need more incentive, like whether that be, you know, charitable contributions from major tech firms to help pay for people to actually go out and review popular open source uh, projects or just developers spending a bit of their time going through and helping review them. I don't know. It's a difficult one to solve because like you said, there's not a whole lot of financial incentive for it. And at the end of the day, like it's difficult. Like it is actually like maintaining a package isn't easy and people tend to have day jobs. I think the one thing that does help is there are open source foundations that are more business-like, like Apache remains free, but Apache is such a big and complex app that it has a real business behind it that has real employees and and they basically, they, they make a business not necessarily off the open source or the software, but of support of it, I think. So I guess one way is just, you know, hopefully more that the mature open source that's widely used turns into something that's more business-like you know you don't have to it can still be open source but you have some sort of support policy or or dynamic where you have paid maintainers that really do spend time maintaining the packages yeah agreed either way though uh cool seeing that report come out Uh, it'll be interesting to see how that trends next year if they run another one then um moving on though so another report i wanted to look at uh, so this one starts 10 years ago, where a group of researchers under the name Digital Bond conducted a research project that they called Project Basecamp to investigate critical operational technology device security, and where they ultimately coined the term insecure by design uh, for these systems. Um, so before we jump into the the updates to this saga, uh, Corey, do you want to go over a bit of a, an overview of the difference between operational technology and traditional information technology? Huh, I need to find that Gartner definition again to use their definition. But to me, uh, operational technology is, is you know, things like uh, uh, HVAC systems, big turbines, centrifuges, uh, it, the types of technology you're going to find on, on, a, on a plant floor, uh, things that, you know, water pumps, stuff like that. So I, I guess tech that are for managing, I guess, like the safety and usage of like a, a an industrial system versus like IT being like the business side of things. Exactly. Yeah, that's great. Like the back office, all these type of companies will have normal computers, normal ADs, but they're going to have very specialized equipment for industrial manufacture or whatever reasons. And while they're still computers too, the, the operational technology is like this, these proprietary you know, manufacturing or, 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 or water systems, et cetera. And while they may like connect over ethernet, they tend to use like their own proprietary custom protocols. Often they don't connect over a traditional ethernet. The network old stuff doesn't. Other... I, I yeah. think we'll find that unfortunately the ethernet has gone up, which is really the problem with all this OT technology. It was supposed to be protected by this air gap of not being connected to a network, but I would say the majority of it nowadays does have Ethernet. Yeah, so last week, Forescout released a report titled OT Icefall, uh, which is named after the second stop on the Everest route, uh, the first stop being Basecamp, so kind of piggybacking off that initial report 10 years ago, uh, where Forcepoint detailed their research into OT systems. Basically, they went out and bought, I think it was something like 60 or like several dozen different operational technology devices and systems by around a dozen or so different manufacturers and just looked for vulnerabilities in them. 
um, and then also gave a picture of the overall landscape for operational technology systems. Uh, so in the report, they noted the systems they tested are commonly used in industries like oil and gas, chemical, nuclear, power generation and distribution, water treatment and distribution, mining, and building automation. And from the report, there were a few interesting and somewhat frightening, but not really surprising findings that they had. Um, so first off, they were able to identify 56 new vulnerabilities in devices made across 10 different operational technology vendors that were caused by insecure by design practices. And by the um, way, I, I think, you know, unlike some, sometimes we talk about Honeywell like OT technology, and they definitely have OT, including industrial technology, but at least Honeywell people know their name because you can get Honeywell equipment in your home. But these were all companies like, I think, Delta V, OpenBSI, Control Oh, yeah, OpenBSI. Yeah, yeah, the, everyone knows about that. Stardom. Uh, I, I know all the devices that run the Procon OS. So my, my point being is this is very uh, proprietary things that I think the average you know business network person probably hasn't heard of, but are ex not, extremely common. Industries. Yeah, but they they're they're common names in those industries. So, and I think that's part of the equation. But anyways, keep going. Yep, of those flaws. 26% uh, of them were issues that could enable credential compromise, 21% enabled firmware manipulation, 14% were remote code execution, and the rest were some mix of either configuration manipulation, denial of service, authentication bypass, file manipulation, or logic manipulation. So logic manipulation being, again, the actual logic that tells this system what to do based off of inputs. Um, so just going through the report like a lot of the the issues uh boil down to hard-coded credential use across all of these which is something we see across iot devices just in As i, I was going to say that i mean the sad thing is you would think industrial ot technology things that these very specialized companies use would somehow be better than iot but meanwhile, you've heard Mark and I talk about IoT a lot. Mark, I mean, hard-coded credentials is one of the first things you look for because it seems to be the circa 2000 mistake that IoT vendors still make to this day. So I, like you said, to me, it's just surprising that kind of IoT 101 crap is all over this OT technology. Yeah, uh, even worse than that, there were quite a few issues that uh, were derived from having no authentication at all for their management protocols. Basically, if you can get on the network where these protocols are handled, you can issue commands to take over control of the device or instruct it to do what you want without any authentication whatsoever. Uh, which that one, I feel like boils down to like, you know, these used to be air gapped where maybe that wasn't the biggest issue then. But now that we are literally connecting them to traditional IT networks, that's Certainly not the case. It is that Ethernet connector. And I think we, we've said this in the past when we talk about skater industrial security. Like uh, these devices, many of them were made in the day and age where air gaps existed. And like if you read uh, the OTI fall report, you'll see what, what a normal uh, kind of uh, OT network or OT business would look like where they do have an enterprise zone. But... Unlike some companies, OT companies should be relatively good at segmenting. But I think in the past, the, the thing that had their their plant DMZ, the place where they had their human you know, interface machines, 
those were not as ethernet connected as they are today but now everything has ethernet and they're just sneaking that air gap is sneaking all over the place speaking of ethernet there were at least a few issues that were caused by management access like telnet and ssh being enabled by default with hard-coded credentials which i mean this is like you said stuff that i'd find in like the crappy like webcams straight from china uh it's difficult or at least it's tough seeing this in operational technology systems that are going to be you know sitting in a power plant like that's a bit more extreme than some random camera that someone might buy off amazon um one really interesting finding uh, was 74% of the devices had some form of security assurance certification, uh, like ISA secure uh, component uh, security assurance or system security assurance or quite a few others. And one quote that really stood out to me from the report was, considering the vulnerabilities discussed in this research are either the result of insecure by design or often trivial failures of security design, these findings point to some serious issues with the security standards and certifications for operational technology, which yep. is a very good point. Like these assurance cert uh, certifications are supposed to say, like guarantee that your development and design process and engineering process are adhering to some sort of security standard that could then mean that your device is probably more secure than ones that don't have the certification. But if they're missing these like low hanging fruit issues, like, yeah, obviously it's not a good test if they're not seeing the basics. Yeah, I, I did skim some of the webinar and I will say the speaker on the webinar did say, by the way, I don't think certification is worthless. It's a good idea to have. But again, re-mentioning re the issue is you definitely need to up that certification so that it at least covers the basics. Yeah, they pointed out some of their reasons they think that uh, these issues are coming about. Like one they pointed to is the recertification effort is lengthy and costly, costly, and it causes some vendors to opt for the lowest level or simply state that they're developing their products according to a standard versus actually going through the certification process. Uh, they point out that the target of evaluation might be incredibly limited or not cover some of the most relevant attack surfaces like proprietary engineering functionality or third-party networking libraries. And they also pointed out that some of the security definitions in these certifications are really opaque or ambiguous, like generic things like moderate resources or sophisticated means or IACS specific skills. Basically, like it leaves it up to interpretation and that interpretation could be very loose and allow some of these uh, issues to not be picked up on. Either way, though, like 54 vulnerabilities or 56 vulnerabilities in devices where 74% of them had some form of security assurance certification isn't a good look for that particular industry. Um, another thing they highlighted was uh, they actually had issues with tracking vulnerabilities across a lot of this technology because it's not really standard to go get a CVE uh, and track vulnerabilities across the products. Um, that's I'd say that's very much picked up in the IT space, but it doesn't seem to have picked up a whole lot in the OT space. And then... Uh, one final issue they pointed to was there appeared to be a limited usage uh, of like some of these programmable uh, systems between run modes and program modes, meaning if it is running and connected to a network, an attacker with access to it could trigger it to program it and program new logic onto that host. Uh, whereas they recommended having a physical hard switch uh, at best, or at least some sort of logical way to switch between run and program modes. So 
it's not just sitting there waiting for someone to reprogram it. Um, either way, though, interesting report. They actually, like you mentioned, they detailed a few specific attack scenarios on how an attacker could pivot from a compromised like data historian or a workstation on an IT network and attack the SCADA network um, through some of these vulnerabilities. I think they had like three or four scenarios, which were pretty cool. Um, and then the real big whammy was at the end, they showed a Shodan search for this. And they actually found thousands of these devices, not just connected to an IT network, but connected directly to the internet and indexed by Shodan, which is about as bad as it could possibly get for that. I'm actually not surprised about that. I guess it was actually a name, I but it was a, a PLC from Honeywell. I, I remember when I did like a five or six year old SCADA presentation, one of the things was a real time. Uh, there was a Shodan search for how to find this specific device. And not only did they show up, but you could... Uh, uh, I heard from a friend the default password actually worked to log into to the device too. So... <laughs> Uh, scary stuff showing up on the internet for sure. Hopefully, hopefully it wasn't a real factory. Maybe it was a demo unit or something. That's what I tell myself at night when I turn on my water faucet and hope something. I mean, we comes always out. see, yeah, we always see CISA warn of like hostile foreign nation states like probing our critical infrastructure, looking for security weaknesses. And if that critical infrastructure is just straight up connected yeah. to the internet. Like that's not. Don't a make good it look. that easy for them. Yeah, <laughs> give them at least a few roadblocks. Oh man. Either way, if you are in the OT space or if you're just interested in it, the overall the report was pretty dang interesting. Even like to my stance, where I have no real, uh, no real uh, say in the game. So uh, definitely check it out. OT Icefalls, what it's called from Force Point or Force Scout. Uh, moving on, the last thing I wanted to chat about. Uh, so Gartner, just speaking of Gartner, uh, they just hosted their Security and Risk Management Summit last week, where they disclosed their eight security-related predictions for the coming years. Um, and they cheated, unlike us, who try and predict for just the, the single year coming. Theirs actually extend all the way out to 2026 in one of their predictions. And the bulk of theirs are like business-oriented in the cybersecurity space. But I figured we could go through them uh, and then just give our two cents on whether we think it's uh, realistic or... Um, yeah, I, I would say some of them are just Gartner getting to predictions we made long ago, but that's okay, yeah. we'll go through them. <laughs> <laughs> so let's start the first one, where they said, through 2023, government regulations requiring organizations to provide consumer privacy rights will cover 5 billion citizens and more than 70% of the global GDP. And so my interpretation of this is basically something like GDPR expanding well beyond the European Union and into other large congregations of people like the U.S. Um, and other massive countries. I think 2023 feels like a little ambitious for that, um, but but it but it will I happen. Think it's trending towards it. Yes. Yeah. We we started our we had a prediction on this essentially that GDPR would come to the U.S. Uh, which has started with California, at least with the CCPA. But I, I think you're right that 2023 is a little ambitious in that bureaucracy slows crap down. And right now, I think globally, there's a lot of dysfunctional governments around the world that for other political reasons can't pass anything. Yeah, uh, there's some other bigger global uh, political <laughs> things happen issues too, going yeah. on. But I feel like this one is inevitable. I, I I do think there's, you know, I think we made 
to me, it's consumer backlash. It started with consumer backlash with privacy issues on social media, consumer backlash with IoT privacy things. So I feel like they're right. And we made the prediction ourselves even earlier, <laughs> which uh, didn't come true during that time. But I think it's inevitable if this was within a five-year range, I think it's probably going to happen. Yeah, I'd agree. I think five-year is more realistic for this, but hey, maybe next year. Um, second prediction was by 2025, 80% of enterprises will adopt a secure a strategy to unify web, cloud services, and private application access from a single vendor's security service edge or SSE platform. This this prediction is right up WatchGuard's alley. I mean, this is why we have our SASE strategy. So I guess agree. Uh, this is obviously one of the more business ones. But uh, actually, to me, this one, I, I kind of think Gartner's changing their tune. As someone that talks to Gartner a lot, because uh, we are a vendor ourselves. really the point of what WatchGuard has been doing, it, it's, it's summed up in what we call our unified security platform. You know, security has lots of different types of, of, of components, endpoint, network, identity, lots of layers, and having to manage all that separately. And by the way, now you add first all the layer security needs, but now you add the hybrid network where you have SaaS services, hybrid cloud situations, people working from every place on earth. And it just simply makes sense that for <laughs> the poor sanity of IT in your security group, you, you need to unify some of the, the management of all these capabilities just in order to get stuff done. You know, I think most security groups find themselves under-resourced in the fact that they just have all kinds of projects they would want to do to improve things. So unifying makes total sense to me. But I would say this almost is like an about face because Gartner, you know, we created a unified threat management device to do this. Gartner was always, oh, the enterprise is the one that will piecemeal it. They want best in breed. They will buy the best of each thing. But this seems to be saying they're now going to adopt a unified vendor strategy. So it seems like consolidation or unification of controls is trickling up Gartner. So maybe we should have been in the leader quadrant for unifying long before you had this prediction. I'm, I'm overstating it just for fun. <laughs> Sorry, Gartner. Well, I don't think that 80% of enterprises by 2025 is realistic for this either, because that would imply that basically the next time renewals come up for a lot of these services, 80% of enterprises are going to go with a single vendor. Single for vendor. All of those. Yeah. And I don't think in the next renewal for a lot of these things, they're going to start consulting. I bet they'll start moving towards there potentially. But it will but take time. Yeah. yeah. It, yeah I could see that. This is that doesn't occur overnight. But I, I do still think the premise that I, I don't care how big your business is when you can start to consolidate things and save. It's not about saving the money from buying different things. It's about saving the time of the people that have to manage it all. That there's far more human costs and when you buy security controls, I think, than, than actually the control itself. So it does make sense that people are going to adopt something that simplifies managing multiple types of security. So the, uh, yeah, totally makes sense. Uh, next prediction was 60% of organizations will embrace zero trust as a starting point for security by 2025. More than half will fail to realize that benefit. 
I, I wonder what the, what that second part means, because I assume that half applies to the 60%, meaning of the 60%, more than half will not realize the benefit of going to zero trust. So I'm curious, I, I uh, the, the report we looked at just had these predictions, didn't have a, a keynote, we didn't get to, I didn't get to see a keynote discussing it. So I'm curious why they they think so many will fail to realize the benefit. My My interpretation of it is, like organizations will realize that like zero trust is uh, well, they will attempt to start deploying a zero, zero trust architecture, but they may like fail somewhere along the lines, meaning it's it's not easy. It's not a flip a switch and suddenly you're zero trust. Like there's potentially an entire re-architecting of your network. There's definitely re-architecting of how you do policy and access management yeah. and uh, monitoring on it. And so it's it's a difficult venture and some might just say, screw it and stop. I mean, part of zero trust just means making that ban hammer decision of, okay, employee, I'm only going to give you access to certain programs that you can use. And there's always pushback on that. There's always help desk calls and people that say, but I want to do this, but I want to do this. And I, I <laughs> as those scale up when you first adopt something like a zero trust model, I, I guess I agree with you, Mark. I could see people like just say, damn it, I'm sick of these calls. Just give it to them. And that's the... <laughs> The first little leak in the dam that suddenly floods you back to doing convenience over security again when zero trust really should be more about, uh, you know, sacrificing a little bit of convenience to make sure people don't have overly permissive access to everything. Yeah, agreed. Um, let's see. Prediction number four was by 2025, 60% of organizations will use cybersecurity risk as a primary determinant in conducting third-party transactions and business engagements. And 60% feels a little big, but this is definitely where it's trending. Like we've seen this as well too, like the number of uh, requests we've gotten for uh, security and privacy audits Absolutely. have skyrocketed. We do this ourselves. Like we now require of all our vendors going through uh, uh, our, our vendor validation process, which includes security questionnaires. So I definitely think there's an increase here. My only issue with this is the primary. You know, I'm the security white tower guy. Well, I'm not. I do balance it with business stuff, but I'm the security guy. So I should be pushing this as the primary reason. I don't think it's the primary reason people are picking vendors, though. I think instead, uh, at least in organizations, I see the department that wants to, to use some new SaaS app or share some data somewhere. They care more about their business stuff and sometimes push back on the people doing the vendor security analysis to say, hey, this is the one I really want. What can we do? So uh, I, I agree that there should be some prediction that this is increasing more and more business as they do third-party transactions and, and partnerships will use cybersecurity as one of the ways to make sure that will go through. I still see business as being the driver and and often trying to rally against the security, but we'll see. I, I actually think it should be one of the primary determinants though, because I don't care how cool a service is if they turn out to be the way you lose all your customers' data. Uh, it may not be a good, good thing that you adopted that service. I think if the prediction was 60%, would have it as a factor or a, even a major yes. factor, that's 100% accurate. That, 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 that I think I would hit. Yeah, yeah. Don't get me wrong. Again, primary would be nice. I just think uh, major is, is what I would definitely agree 100% if it said major like you. 
Uh, prediction number five, through 2025, 30% of nation states will pass legislation that regulates ransomware payments, fines, and negotiations up from 1% in 2021. This one, actually, I think I can get behind. Like, the U.S. has already started going down that route. Like, we haven't regulated all ransomware payments, but Sanctioned FinCEN, countries. the, uh, the yeah. financial, financial Crimes Enforcement Network, will go after you if you pay a ransomware extortion to someone out of North Korea or Iran or whatever. This is one I want to come true simply because I think every listener knows my and, and our stance on right. People shouldn't pay. The fact that insurers have paid so long has just driven the malicious business model. But this is also one I just don't I don't see it happening. I, I'm skeptical here. I know FinCEN has, has done the, hey, basically they said we might go after you if it's a sanctioned country. Remember, that's illegal. But I... I I haven't seen them go after anyone that paid a ransom yet. And I'm sure there's some that have gone to places like North Korea. So it's it's one I hope comes true, but I'm somehow skeptical. I I think that'd be a lot of pushback. Uh, you know, this is the type of thing that businesses don't like regulating, whether it's a good, like it's, it's not good for business to pay ransomware, but if you happen to be the business that you're gonna go under unless you get your files back, they might, be upset at government. So I surely hope nation states pass regulation that helps lower ransomware incidents and lower payments. I just feel somewhat skeptical of this one. Yeah, that's fair. Um, prediction six, by 2025, threat actors will have weaponized operational technology environments successfully to cause human casualties. And based off that last report, I'd say this is entirely possible. I, I predicted this long ago, and it was targeted towards ICS and SCADA. And I, I, I think there's some evidence that things like this may have happened. I, there's still a Saudi pipeline bombing situation that seemed to be cyber. Uh, cyber was used to help. By the way, just a quick groan that I just used cyber. <laughs> I I've just become the Defcon nightmare of the the she the government's. Uh, anyways, that aside, uh, there were some uh, evidence that cyber attacks were used to help in bombings. There's some that hacking systems were used in shootings. Uh, so I, I can get on board. I actually think people don't realize how connected technology is to the physical world nowadays, and there's lots of potential for this. And I believe it might have already happened. We just don't know much about it as a, you know, it, it hasn't become public. So no argument from me, Gartner. I think we made this prediction long ago, like I think seven years. I'll have to look up what year we made a prediction that there would be a human casualty due to a cyber attack. But And especially if like this war in Ukraine continues chugging along, like I feel like this will be much quicker than 2025. Absolutely. Uh, Unfor prediction number, unfortunately. Unfortunately, yes. Uh, prediction number seven, by 2025, 70% of CEOs will mandate a culture of organizational resilience to survive coinciding threats from cybercrime, severe weather events, civil unrest, and political instabilities. And really, I interpret this as 70% of CEOs will mandate a good BCDR, BCDR plan. plan. And by the way, that's the first, yes. 
I, I hope it's the CEOs mandating it too, so that we can get budget to do it. But I can tell you, CISOs and CSOs, if uh, BCDR should be one of your main things. You know, I, I this is not a negative statement. I think you can do really good at security and minimize your incidents. But if your goal, if you think you're going to be the one that kills all cybercrime and, and it makes it impossible for your organization to have any sort of incident, you're, you're totally deluded. Uh, the best part of this is it mentions it's not just cybercrime. It could be an earthquake. It could be uh, someone throwing a Molotov cocktail at your, your data center. Uh, so if you're not considering BCDR, you're a little crazy. It really is the only control you have that knowing that one day you are going to have an incident, whatever the incident is. There's nothing you can do to stop it. There's something that will happen one day. Making sure you're prepared for it is the only and best thing you can do. So one I support coming true. I hope it hits all the way up to the CEO level. But I can tell you people like our CEO, I mean, security has come first. Watching supply chain attacks, watching uh, a different digital supply chain attacks, I mean, but watching other things like not being able to get supply chain stuff, uh, affecting business, watching DDoS. It's, it's definitely something CEOs are thinking about, how to keep business running, even in the, the horrible likelihood of exactly. an event. Um, and then finally rounding it out, by 2026, 50% of C-level executives will have performance requirements related to risk built into their employment contracts. I would like to see this because that means that it's not just a security and IT function, that it's an entire organizational function. I would love to see this. Uh, like, for instance, someone like me or, or us, Mark, we're, we're a CSO in the related roles. We certainly have these sort of requirements. But the CFO, the guy writing the checks, uh, the... I don't know, the, the chief uh, support officer or, or, or the VP of customer service. I, I, I have not seen this go to the other C-level roles yet. I think the CEO, the security, and the CIO, so whoever's in charge of IT, all of them certainly have these now, but it would be interesting to see how this comes through and what those requirements look like for the non-technology departments, like marketing even. What would the, the CMO's uh, you know, risk performance requirement be like? I would like to see it happen because I think all of us, the uh, security is a people problem as much as a technology problem. And you, you need a culture that goes all across every department and, and C-levels need to drive that. But uh, I, I haven't seen the type of requirements in a contract for the other types of C-level roles. So I'd be interesting to see what those are starting to look like. Gartner must be seeing something for them to predict this, but I personally haven't yet. Yeah, either way. Like, I feel like these are pretty solid predictions, especially since half of them are stolen from us. Yeah, pretty much. I, Gardner can do next year just by checking out. Uh, I think they're seven years behind, so maybe they'll eventually catch up with some of this year's. I'm kidding. We love you, Gardner. Just joking. <laughs> All for fun. Please don't pull us out of the magic quadrant. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, cool report, though. Yeah, for sure. So 
I guess, man, maybe we got to make some more longer term predictions officially for our next round of security. Predictions well, yeah, maybe the sometimes the most fun predictions as far as weird dystopian things, it's hard for us to do next year, but we can certainly do in a five or 10 year timeline. So maybe we should do this approach where some of our predictions are in the next five years rather than just next year. Yeah, and if you listeners have any interesting predictions, throw them our way too, and we'll absolutely discuss them on the podcast. Yep. Uh, and with that, man, time to sign off. Here, let me get my pen. That's how you sign off on a podcast, right? <clears throat> God, get right out. Right on your microphone. <laughs> okay. <laughs> hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. As always, if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Uh, if you have any questions on today's topics, suggestions for future episode topics, or you want to pitch your predictions to us to review, uh, you can reach out to us on Twitter. I'm at XORRO underscore. Corey is at Secadept. And the both of us are at hashtag the 443 podcast. Thanks again for listening. And we are actually off next week for some well-deserved PTO. We will chat with you two weeks from now. Summer, summer, summertime. Summertime. End recording. <laughs>